Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, we have Dr. Jeff Perron from Ottawa who is on the show with us. He is a clinical psychologist, and he is a, a real interesting guy. He tracked us down. I think he stumbled upon our podcast, started listening to it, reached out to us. We, uh, we traded some emails back and forth. Seemed like a good guy. Definitely a topic that I like chatting about. Um, he, he works out of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral, Behavioral, Behavioral Therapy. I can't speak. Maybe I need to get Jeff services. <laughs> um, the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And uh, we had a good chat about all things around psychology. Um, he has an interest in real estate together with his wife. We get into some real estate chat towards the end, but just an all-round great chat about the mindset, how we think, how our thoughts affect our feelings and our behaviors. I really enjoy talking about this stuff. So I've you know extended an offer for him to come back on and chat further. If you're enjoying this specific type of chat, please reach out and let us know. Um, just all-round great guy. And Jeff, thank you for coming out here and doing this. And if you are listening to this and you want to get involved in real estate, but you don't know where to start, you can check out one of our books. We give them away for free, trying to offer good information to Canadians who are trying to th uh, think about real estate as a possible option for themselves as an investment. You can get free copies of all our books at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books books. We have the most popular one that we've ever put out is Income for Life for Canadians. It's been downloaded. We need to double check this, but we must be crossing over six figures soon. So it's been downloaded a whole bunch of times. We have three other books out there. Your Life, Your Terms book. And that book specifically, we get a lot of feedback about because each chapter is written by a different real estate investor that we've worked with here in the GTA in the Golden Horseshoe area. And they've shared their stories. So if you're trying to figure out if real estate's right for you and you don't want to hear it for us, from us, you can download that copy of that book, the Your Life, Your Terms book, and read stories of all different Canadians and how they've come to the decision of real estate, their experiences with it, and what they're doing with it next. That's it. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. All right, we are live with Jeff Perron. How did I do? Perfect. I did okay? Yeah. Okay, so Jeff, pull the mic nice and close. I should have given you the warning. Yeah, you really have to come into this That's mic. That's right. That's good. That's good. You're good. And um, if you're not, I'll just kind of yell at you. Is that okay? I yep. feel like I have to be careful what I'm about to say to you because Jeff, so if you're listening to this, you should know Jeff is a has a PhD in... Clinical psychology. Clinical psychology. Actually, turn the mic sideways, the base, like this, and then you can turn the mic and bring it even closer to you. So, yeah, that way. Yeah. And then turn. There we go. And now you can kind of really come closer to the mic like that. Um, I'll actually, one thing I've learned from podcasts is I, if I'm agreeing with you, I won't say, yep, yep, yep. I'll try to just like nod so it's not like cutting you off. You know what I mean? You're a total pro. I'm still learning. Look, we're 150 some odd episodes in and I'm still learning this stuff. <laughs> we'll get better together. Yeah. The, big, the biggest the biggest feedback we get is would you guys stop cutting each other off? And I don't think people listening understand when Nick says something that I don't agree with, I'm going to cut him off. That's just how it's going to be. There's no, it. there's no changing that. He's my younger brother. I have to cut him off and he will gladly cut me off. But I, I just wanted to mention that you, um, you're a psych, you have a PhD in clinical psychology. 
That's it. And what does that mean, clinical psychology? So clinical psychology, we're interested in the treatment, diagnosis, assessment of um, mental health conditions. I, you know, I, I hesitate to use the term disorder because that's certainly not the the framework that I practice from, um, but we are interested in for folks who are having challenges with with their mental health and how do you assess that? How do you treat that? How do you help folks uh, get better and reach whatever goal it is that they have? We were just saying before we started recording that I actually have a degree in psychology from the University of Toronto, but my degree, I, I can't remember anything from what I took in that degree, but I've come to realize that over time, psychology and my belief system has been one of the most important things in what I am thankful for with my life. Because I always tell people that, and you have this thing that I was kind of, you had shared with me briefly about thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that I'm going to ask you about. But I've always kind of read different books about, I don't know, personal development books or some things kind of just teaching you goal setting books, how to get things done. And I came to this conclusion that I was like, okay, all these books kind of say the same thing, that the thoughts are going to dictate how I feel. My feelings are likely going to dictate my habits. And what I do every day is ultimately going to produce the results in my life. So I'm like, it probably makes sense. It took me, I think, 10 years of reading different books to come to that conclusion. So it wasn't like something I picked up overnight, but I'm like, oh, this, this whole psychology thing is actually pretty important. It determines the outcomes of my life. It's all about beliefs. And if you can understand the beliefs that are driving you, that's a, a huge starting point in terms of understanding your own behavior and, and your motivations. And there's, a, you know, understanding where, where are my beliefs and values helping me and where are my beliefs and assumptions getting in the way of what I want to achieve. So when you, when you ask somebody, uh, that's, I didn't think we were going to go down this path right out of the gates, but now I'm kind of interested. When someone has a belief system that isn't serving them, how do you get them to recognize it? You pull out a piece of paper and get them to like write out some of the things that they think are val like their values in life or something. Well, let, I'll I'll kind of give you the starting point for. I don't know if you wanted to share this or not, so I'm just no. Throwing that's this at perfect. You. Yeah, okay, okay. That's perfect. So, in terms of the framework I practice from, it's a cognitive behavioral therapy framework. So, cognitive behavioral therapy gets at cognitions and behaviors, right? And the the CBT model in its simplest format is if you can kind of picture a triangle on a whiteboard, you've got thoughts at one end, feelings at the other, behaviors at the other. So this triad. Um, and where, where we focus is we want to understand whatever's going on in a given situation, take any situation for anyone, you can generally fit it into that model. So uh, if we've got a client who comes in and says, I'm really anxious in, in this type of situation, oftentimes one of the first things we'll do is put it in that, that framework. So what's happening in terms of your thoughts? Well, I'm really scared that um, Tom is is looking at my my shirt and you know the way I'm holding myself and, and he thinks, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, emotionally, so the feeling, I'm going to maybe feel anxious, maybe down, maybe frustrated. And behaviorally, I'm going to change my behaviors in, in some way, right? So all these things are, are connected. So often the, the starting point is just that, is helping people uh, see whatever's going on for them in that model. And from there, you really start to, to learn a lot about uh, the person and what they're experiencing. And then you pair that with their goals to, to make changes. So coming back to CBT, we generally make changes with the, the cognition, so challenging unhelpful thoughts. And then the behavior so, and challenging unhelpful behavioral patterns. How do people get to the point of having a slew of unhelpful thoughts? Is it 
is it their environment? Like, is there a definitive answer to that? Is it the environment they grow up? Cause I'm just wondering about myself. I'm like, okay, over the years, I've definitely had thoughts where I've doubted myself before we started this business. I used to think, Oh, how do, how are people successful in business? Like what secrets do they have that I don't understand? And am I good enough to be able to do something? And now looking back, I realize, Oh, all those thoughts were kind of useless. You just get out there and do stuff. And if you're doing things the right way, and for me, that means following principles, like always do the right thing, treat other people as you would treat yourself, give 100%. If you do things the right way, like good things kind of just happen. How, is someone's value system or their thinking, is it is it a product of their environment or is it a, like innate in them, their biology, a, a DNA kind of thing? So it's a definitively undefinitive answer in that it's 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 both right. It's it's genetics and it's it's environment. Um, I tend to lean on the side of you know we're we're all as human beings uh, hardwired with a certain set of somewhat common traits and and perspectives and you know neural wiring. Um, but then I, I'm kind of of the belief, and this is you know, very unscientific, but kind of 60, 40, that it's kind of environment, um, 60% environment and upbringing, and then 40%, um, genetics to, to kind of put a crude, uh, breakdown on it. Um, but yeah, someone's belief system. So if we come back to like that triad of thoughts, feelings, behaviors, the thing that the, if you're asking, what is it that's driving these thoughts? Why am I having these thoughts? That's your core beliefs and your core beliefs are the lenses through which you see yourself and the world and, and other people. So if you have, you know, this core belief around being a failure, then that you, you can just guess the slew of thoughts that are going to come from that. And if you, if you've been programmed for whatever reason, um, to believe that you're a failure, that you're at risk of being a failure then you're going to have thoughts that are in line with that. And then you're going to behave in certain ways. So someone who is, you know, has this f fear of, I don't, I don't want to be a failure. I'm worried that I'm, I'm somehow a failure that could be totally paralyzing and they could you know, totally withdraw in the extreme from society, from, from day-to-day -day life. Uh, in the, the other end of the spectrum that could drive someone to achieve quote unquote achieve um, that may be helpful, but that may also have a lot of down downsides as well as if that achievement is in you know, one domain. It's all I got to achieve in the workplace and the the per the, the home life. Sorry, uh, falls by the wayside. So um, that's just kind of one example of how beliefs influence thoughts, influence behavior. And I, I don't know what uh, what kind of things you must see. And sometimes I just feel lucky. That some uh, sometimes I, I, I genuinely feel lucky that I feel like I must have a lot of problems and maybe I'm not even aware of them. <laughs> so I, I feel like I don't have to seek out any help around my problem. But I, I shouldn't laugh at that. But I, I guess, you know, I was telling a couple of friends that you were coming on and uh, we all grew up together uh, and, and we all are the kids of immigrant parents in Mississauga, of all different kind of, you know, people kind of moved into the area. And we all grew up with without a lot of supervision you know our none of our parents really went to school here in Canada so none of them really knew what high school was about they definitely didn't know what university was about we were all just kind of left to run wild and looking back at some of my own high school experiences I just feel fortunate that I got out of that um, alive because it was a lot of crazy stuff but a bunch of us look uh, look back on that and we're like wow, we had zero guidance. Like we didn't have anyone to tell us what to do or not to do. Are we crazy? Like, 
are at this point in our lives, are we just crazy? You know, how did we even get to this point? So to sit down with someone like you, I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to think of, uh, think, look at someone like us and, and or me and my friends and think just we're completely insane. But um, I'm joking when I say that. I'm way off track now. I'm way, I'm, I'm way off track. I'm just thinking how crazy we, <laughs> a bunch of us are. But um, back to this whole thoughts, feelings, and behaviors thing. If someone is... Um, feeling anxiety right now. You know, with everything going on in the world, we're in this kind of whole COVID era. What are some things you can do to just either maybe self-identify or calm yourself down? I know a bunch of people who are kind of freaked out about what's going on in the world, and I don't seem so freaked out. My my own personal way to look at what's happening with the COVID stuff is I kind of look at the some of the data that's out there, and I look at the death rates in the different categories, and I'm like, okay, you know what? We should be protecting people in the long-term care facilities. We should be protecting people who have certain conditions that make them susceptible stuff. And that gives me, I don't know if it's a little bit of peace, but it gives me a, maybe a little bit of a feeling of control. I feel like I have some control over the healthy control, some kind of healthy control by look, I'm, I force myself to look at this data by looking at the data rightly or wrongly. I feel like, okay, I know how to navigate through this. Is that just a a mechanism I'm using to protect myself? Is that, is that something you advise or if someone's having anxiety in this kind of world and this COVID stuff, is there any things that you would kind of tell them, Hey, do this to kind of help alleviate some of that? This is an interesting experiment because we have standards for behavior now from from public health, which is kind of a, a unique um, stressor to go through, right? Because generally, you know, the stressors that, that clients come to us with, there's not necessarily one kind of code of conduct that we can compare uh, against. And in this case, we do, right? We've got guidance from public health and we've got guidance if you if you are in certain vulnerability or risk categories, you, you maybe want to take some certain extra steps, but the guidance is there. So it if we have, if we're feeling particularly anxious, am I doing the right thing? Am I, you know, um, more at risk than I need to be? We do have that guidance to compare against. Of course, okay, that got doesn't... it. So you're just using the government guidance and say, do this and you should feel better. Oh, that's a loaded question. Yeah. Uh... Okay. Okay. No, we don't even have to go to government thing. But what about the person who is like, who is just feeling anxious because they're going to go into a grocery store? Yep. They're about to go in. They know they're probably going to be okay. They're going to put on a mask, but they get in the grocery store. People are getting too close to them and they feel kind of that anxiety building up. Is there something they can do to just control that? I don't think they can control it. And I think that actually if we talk about some of the, that's a very unhopeful message. It probably sounds like, but that that's actually. No, uh, but I think I know what you mean. It's just something that is coming out naturally in you. Yep. Like that's just a spontaneous reaction. And I don't think you can do anything to control that in the moment. But afterwards, when you kind of replay what happened, is there anything you can kind of say to yourself to maybe prepare yourself for the next time it happens? So I would look at this from we've got the the public health guidance. And I guess let me kind of take a step back in terms of this idea of controlling emotion. So one of the things that we find if we look at someone who's um, going through a mental health challenge, um, one of the factors that's often part of that is an unhealthy attempt to control emotions, right? So, uh, you know, I've got this anxiety. I shouldn't have this anxiety. It's bad. I want it to go away. And invariably, that gives you more anxiety, frustration, anger, uh, fatigue. And that that certainly doesn't help your cause, right? And that's, that's and an that's oversimplification. That makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah. Because I've been in that state myself many times before. Why am I freaking out right now? I shouldn't be freaking out. Yep. And then that freaks you out more. <laughs> 
<laughs> Got and it. as humans, okay. We're, okay. we're hardwired to feel these unwanted emotions, right? And people say, well, you know, we've, we've been evolving for all these years. And, and why do we have these unwanted, you know, quote unquote, negative emotions? Those things in there at their best help keep us safe. If you can think back to us living in a forest a hundred thousand years ago with, with bears and, and coyotes. See, this is where I remember something. Cause it's my amygdala. Isn't it my amygdala? Exactly, yes. That's the old part of my brain. See, you got it. my university education is totally paying off. <laughs> you got all, it's my amygdala. All that, that was, time hey, and money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So we're just hardwired to be aware of threats. 100%. So we, yeah, hardwired to be aware of threats and we are operating in a modern society with ancient heart, neural hardwiring. And if you can think of going back to that forest example, if you heard, I, I recently was listening to uh, an evolutionary psychiatrist, I believe, who was gave an example of if you were in the, the woods, your, your goal is to perpetuate your genes from an evolutionary standpoint. If you run every time you hear a possible lion coming, that's going to be worth it every time. Because even if you burn a whole bunch of calories, you know, it's, you've got to get back, you got to get that food back. It's, it's, um, you're spending time and resources to get away from something that may not even be there, but you're preventing yourself from, from dying and, and no longer being able to perpetuate your genes. And so fast forward a hundred thousand years, we're still operating with that software in an environment where very rarely are we at an actual physical threat in that sense. So we've kind of used that software to map onto things like email, you know, and we perceive a threat from, from an email and we have the same physiological response that we might've had a hundred thousand years ago in response to, you know, possibly hearing a lion. Yeah, it's even worse now, actually, because when you heard the line before, if you ran away and lived, then you, the threat's gone. But I feel now with social media, if someone attacks you in any sort of way, you can't really get away from that attack. There's like this lingering kind of like anxiety where it's like, I, I don't know who this person is. I don't know why they don't like me. If they said something negative about me, I don't know how to respond. And so you don't know how to put an end to the attack. Whereas before, I feel like, I don't know if you deal with this or not. I don't know why, where, where this is coming from right now, actually. But it's, it, I feel like before, it would just be like, I can the attack's over, and I'm done with it. Whereas now, email is constant. I'm just constantly getting new emails, and it's constantly just a pain in all of our asses. <laughs> like that. And then, or, or on our social media, if you put out something, like for example, you, Jeff, if you put out some study that you had completed, and someone's like, well, this is a load of crap. And then you might have taken, I don't know, two years to put this thing out, all this hard work. And someone with one line can just create that kind of anxiety in you. I feel like there's no way, there's not an easy way to overcome that. I don't know why I've managed to somehow develop a bit of an immunity to criticism, but I feel like it's been one of the most beneficial things both Nick and I attribute to some of our ability to get stuff done. That when people say something about us, and not that we have a lot of people saying anything about us, but when they do or if they do, well, it's like kind of like, yeah, that's fair. I don't know. That's their opinion. I'm just going to keep going. But so I you've adapted to the modern environment in that sense. Because if we think of humans as social beings, you know, 100,000 years ago, you might see 100 people in your life. So you're in a tr small, small group, community. You're dependent on other people in the community for, for food, for shelter. 
And if you had a falling out socially from the group, that could mean death, right? And so it's very important that you have that group cohesion and, and explains why a lot of us are so sensitive to social criticism. Now, fast forward to present day, you might have hundred, a thousand, some people, hundred thousand plus, you know, followers on a social media account, and you're still operating with the the threat perception that you were a um, hundred thousand years ago, right? And so it's just not sustainable to respond in the same way to every critique or threat. And sounds like you've kind of adapted. Yeah, to accidentally, that. accidentally. Yeah, that's fascinating because it's funny that you bring that up because I talk a lot about was village life. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be able to see my own family, my grandparents and aunts in Croatia, and they still lived in a village. And the village took care of everyone. So if there was somebody with special needs, for example, the village just took care of that person, right? Like everybody kind of pitched in and helped out. If there was somebody who couldn't work that day, sickness, some sort of illness or whatever, our village kind of stepped in and kind of handled it. And sometimes I look back at that way of life and I'm like, huh, feels like we're pretty well adapted for that way of life where we all just kind of take care of a group. You were saying a hundred people. We all take care of kind of like that hundred people. And, and there's obviously some, you know, some problems with it. If you don't get along with someone to your point, you better make amends. Otherwise they're going to be a problem within that hundred, hundred person. That's maybe a good thing that it works out that way. But the way society is now where it's such a big group of us, but we can all speak so intimately over social media. It's like, we kind of have this intimate village-like communication in a world that's like so big that we don't know who's speaking to us and it's wrecking us. <laughs> and, and we all live in independent boxes. If you think of houses or apartments or condos, I mean, these are independent boxes, the likes of which, you know, the human mind never evolved to, to live in. So I mean, a lot of researchers, I think it's the UK, is now saying loneliness is one of the, this this was before COVID um, even, it's not going to get any better certainly now, but loneliness is one of the next big epidemics. I feel like that, I'm so happy you're bringing this one up. I don't know why I take this one personally. I feel like that's happening right now where there's people out there, maybe even listening to this, that are struggling with loneliness because they can't get out and socially interact because the interaction that we get over the phone, even FaceTime, it's good, but there's something about being next to another human and talking and interacting it's there's something nourishing about it i know that might sound crazy no 100 percent. yeah I, I just feel like i personally need it like we did zoom meetings with our team really aggressively when covid broke out we were doing them multiple times a week and then with our rockstar inner circle members we were putting out content and everyone was saying how much they appreciated it but as the person doing a lot of the delivering of it i wasn't feeling any nourishment from that a nourishment's the wrong word. I don't know what, why I'm saying using that word. I just wasn't feeling satisfied. Like I felt like I was doing something good, trying to get information out, and I was getting the response back, like thank you. But I just felt like it wasn't. It wasn't satisfied. It didn't. It didn't feel feel good. And uh, I just feel like there's probably people right now still going through that who aren't able to get to work in downtown Toronto. I don't know if you know this. Um, we didn't, I don't know if we mentioned you're from Ottawa. Well, I can mention that. I'll mention that uh, elsewhere. But. Uh, um, some people I know have been told not to come back until June 1st now. Oh yeah. yeah. So they're at home. That, that, that's people just in, recently. Yeah. Like kind of the, yeah. Yeah. That's like the next extension. So I know people in my neighborhood who've been in their homes and you know, there's, there's a family there, but they've been in their homes since March and they have nowhere to really go. If someone's lonely right now, what can this, now we're getting off topic. What is, is there anything that you could suggest they do? 
So obviously I'm sensitive to anything right now. It's well, get on Zoom some more, right? Because there, I think there's limitations to that. And part of the, the challenge mental health wise now is on one hand, using these tools where they're helpful while also being mindful of the fact that you know you, you can't be on Zoom for 11 hours a day, um, all day at work and then with, with friends and family. No, my daughter's on Zoom at high, for high school. I'm two, two days a week now. She's already losing it. I don't know how this year is going to go for her. It, that, <laughs> I, I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. I'm, I'm laughing because I'm fearful. I'm not laughing at the situation. I'm like, holy smokes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how these young minds adapt oh and jeff sorry i mean i gotta tell you this story though in her gym class this is no fault of the teacher teachers just following the procedures but in her gym class she came home and she said dad i had gym we can't pass the basketball so we just dribble by ourselves and we went outside to do frisbee and you can't throw the frisbee to anyone so we throw it up in the air and then it falls to the ground and then i run and get it and i throw it back up in the air and i did that for an hour and i remember wow. just thinking oh my god oh my gosh like i'm happy she's at school but when you hear stories like that, like it's taking all of me not to say, like, what are we doing? It's but, a heck of an image. And some people are saying now, what is this for a generation? And, and I'm not one of these people who's a, a millennial basher. I, I think that millennials have a lot of things stacked against them that previous generations didn't. But um, even if we, we say, OK, maybe millennials have been... Uh, to, I'm, I'm really hesitating because I don't oh, want you this just to sound say negative. You just say it. I, I, some people will say millennials are coddled. There. <laughs> some people. Um, it's going to be But that's not their fault. No, I, I don't That's not think their fault their that fault. they were coddled. That's the, gender, that's the parents that did the coddling. Well, I, I don't... Again... And, and it might not be those parents' fault. Hear me out. Because those parents might have been ignored by their parents. Yeah. So like, this is like a generational built built, thing. And this is, okay, so this leads into more of a, a historical perspective in that it's interesting now that you, we... I pray yourself, uh, myself, uh, folks uh, you know, in their, their 50s, even some folks in their 60s, we're now second, third, in some cases, potentially fourth generations no significant war, at least in, in North America. And and by the way, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of things that need fixing in North America. Um, but it, it, second, third, fourth generation without a major war, yes, we've had some ups and downs economically, but, but by and large, we've had a pretty high standard of living without any major existential threats for two, three, maybe four generations in some cases. So um, it's going to be interesting to see for millennials now and, and society in general, does this further encourage an overprotective view of the world, the world outside, such that, well, okay, you know, you thought the world was dangerous before. Now it's really dangerous. Everybody is dangerous. You never know what that person at the grocery store is carrying. You know, is it going to harm you? You, you must be. You must be cautious all the time. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of knock-on effects. You're, you're bringing up. I, you know, there's this book. It's written 20 years ago called The Fourth Turning Demographer. Um, you ever heard the title of this book? Fourth Turning. It talks about every four generations how just human history shows every 80, 90, 100 years, we go through a massive event. And the last one was World War II, and we are just overdue. And they go, they go hundreds and hundreds of years through this to kind of prove their case. And after you read this, it's like, holy smokes, this next 10 years, it's going to be super interesting because you have the baby boomers who have, let's say, all the stuff, 
right? They got the financial, they're, they're set, right? They got some houses, they're living the way they want to live. They have cars and a boat and have been taking vacations. You got uh, my generation's in the middle. I'm the generation X. Then um, I feel like you're between generation X and end of millennials. Cause you said you're 30, 34. 34. Then you got the millennials who are coming and saying, well, screw you guys. You guys have all the, and, and you know, I'm, I'm talking about the boomers. Screw you guys. You guys took all the jobs. You have all the money. You have all the properties. We're coming out of school with all the student debt. You used all the gas. Yeah, you used all the gas. Where's, Burned up the where's environment. Oil's free, actually. Oil went negative a few months ago. So, you know, we, yeah. we solved that problem. COVID solved that problem. We got free gas. But um, uh, you've left us in this situation. And to me, some of the social things that I see going on where people are kind of frustrated with all different things in North America specifically, to me, it all stems from, and I'm probably wrong with this. It's just maybe, again, how I'm making sense of the world, my worldview is that the economic foundation that things are built on has not been correct. It's been rewarding asset owners. It has not been rewarding income earners and savers. And as a result, the millennials who come in trying to earn an income, if you don't have any assets, that income's not gonna get you any now because they've already gone up a lot and you're really never gonna get into the asset game and they're stuck. And I feel like there's going to be this big pushback from the millennial generation because they're coming into their own now. You know, people like if, if you're the leading edge, mid 30s now getting in there. And sometimes I think maybe it's warranted. Like, you know what? This is a little bit kind of screwed up. How does one generation have all this stuff? Another generation's coming in with all this debt and they can't buy any stuff that they want. And I'm not talking about like a TV. I mean, like a house, a vacation, that kind of thing. And it, I feel like your profession specifically is going to be really needed hmm. over the next, uh, I know, maybe I'm sounding too negative here and I don't mean to be. I just, I like to be aware and prepared. And the future I see right now, I'm like, eh, there's a lot of stuff that might happen here in North America. So back to your point, how no generation here has gone through a lot, like a big, big world war, a, a war or anything. Maybe in the next few years, we're all about to go through something big. And, and hopefully we're, we're seeing that and it doesn't uh, de-escalate uh, too much further. But I, I think something is going to have to give societally if we, you know, we look at you know, wealth distribution. Uh, you're right. And I think we're probably naive if we think that this is just, oh, it's a little blip and we'll just come out of it. And, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll uh, go into deficit for a few years and away we go and we'll be right back on track. Right. And I think that I think you guys had had uh, Jeff Booth on the podcast right and he I, I don't know him well but I've, I've seen um, him speak a, a couple of times and just the way that he put things in terms of you know something has to to shift in terms of economics or that's deflation and, and bringing price down make things cheaper and creating abundance that way or some kind of social revolution and we are also we are already seeing um, some of the seeds of that um, in terms of people unrest with things that are people are rightfully upset about. So um, remains to be seen how far that that extends. But I think the message, it, this people could clip this last kind of two minutes. Oh, the, you know, this is doom and gloom. But the, the upshot positively is that humans are equipped for going through crises. They're resilient species, clearly. And, you know, we will figure this out and we'll get through it. But yeah, mental health wise, um, there is going to be be an impact and we're all going to have to individually and collectively have to make meaning from this experience. What are some of the, uh, the routines that you, you know, so, 
and I agree. I just want to reiterate what you just said. Yeah, everyone comes out of this. Fine. We're all going to come out of the next few years fine. It's just, I think it's useful to be aware of the greater context around you so that you can prepare yourself for it. And again, this might be my own self-defense mechanism, right? I'm always kind of, Nick and I with real estate, we always say, hey, we're short-term paranoid, long-term optimistic because we don't know what's going to happen at any, we're always looking over our shoulder. What's going to happen with the real estate market? What's going to happen with real estate? But long-term, we're always very positive. We're like, oh, long-term, you're going to be fine. But short-term, there's always going to be something to deal with. And I think that applies to me from my own observations just about life. That short-term, anything can happen. My own family went through, you know, a, a really big war in, in the former Yugoslavia and they were Croatian and they kind of went through that. And that was devastating, but people came out of, came out of that. Like, you know, it's, it's like the world didn't come to an end for them. They came out of that. So yeah, there's always kind of the light at the end of the tunnel. But uh, I feel like... I feel like I took us to a dark place and I didn't mean to, but I think, it, I think it's good. What are some of the daily routines that um, people can do to just check their own mental health? I know for me, um, if I get up in the morning before the rest of my family, if I read, if I journal a little bit, write down some of my own thoughts, it's very calming and very useful for me. Are there any studies or anything that you do personally just to kind of manage yourself? So I'm going to take it kind of macro and then down to the day to day. So to me, we talked about this idea of core beliefs. So we've all got core beliefs or some people will call them schemas. So we've all got unhelpful schemas that we have for whatever reason. And those pose a threat in that if we live our lives according to our, our fears and our schemas, that is probably not going to be um, a rewarding or, or meaningful life. The question becomes, okay, once you've identified your schemas and the behaviors that flow from them, then what do you do? Well, what you do there is you've got to be in touch with your values. What is it that you value in life? And everyone's going to have different values. But um, if you look at the different domains that each of us have or roles that each of us have, you know, employee, father, husband, uh, you name it, we, we all have at least probably five, six, seven, eight plus roles that we all have. And in those domains, if we can say, what, what do I value across each of these, across and within each of these roles or domains, that can serve as a guide or a life philosophy for how you live on a day-to-day -day basis. So for me, you know, I value things like honesty, integrity, putting in a, a reasonable, sustainable effort, learning, health, fitness. These are all, these all sound just like vague terms, but from there, once you identify the things that you actually care about and that move you, what are the steps that I need to take on a day-to-day -day basis to make sure that I'm living out those values. So health and fitness, that might mean, you know, working out three, four times a week at a, at a reasonable, sustainable level. Socially, that might mean making sure that I'm seeing friends, you know, once, twice, maybe more a week where possible. Um, Work-wise, what, what, what does that look like in terms of making a, a strong, reasonable contribution on the work front? And so for each of us, we're all going to have, that's going to look different and it's going to look different month to month. But if you can come up with, and I do this for myself, I've got a simple kind of tracking sheet of, okay, what are your goals? Just a reminder, like this is, there's nothing particularly fancy about this for all the, you know, the, the training, there's nothing particularly fancy about uh, the way that I approach this for myself is just little reminders. Hey, here's your, the domains, here's the values that you say you want to focus on and live out. Here's the, the specific goals that flow from those values on a day-to-day, week-to-week week basis. Put a few check marks beside them each week to, to track the extent to which you're living that out. 
you know, reevaluate that every month or two. See if you want to change the the goals. And really, the the name of the game is just how can I um, identify and live out my values to the best of my ability. And the beauty of that framework is it doesn't control the outcome, right? It's not about how much money you make or how many friends you have or what car you have. It's about how, given the circumstances I find myself in, am I doing a reasonable job at living my values, the values I've identified for myself? And once you have that, it that helps alleviate anxiety because it gives you a code of behavior and a life philosophy that helps guide you through uh, struggles and, and crises. Okay, that sounds really, really good. How about how do you not get pissed off at yourself when you write that down? And let's use the health and fitness one, because I'm sure everybody's experienced this one. And you write it down that that's important to me. But then you don't do what you said you were going to do. How do you not just get pissed at yourself and create this downward spiral. Cause I'm sure, especially Is that what's that happening. No, 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 no. Like I, I, you know what happens with me a little bit right now, because after through the first few months of COVID, I like how we talk about COVID, like it's this era of our lives, but, and we all have it, but, um, I just stopped going to the gym altogether. My, my daughter was making these awesome gluten-free brownies. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Like I'm going to have this, bra- I, I ate cookies and brownies. And, uh, I started going back to the gym at some point. It wasn't even the gym, just doing a little bit of physical fitness in, I want to say June sometime. And it was horrible. And ever since then I'm back now to two to three times a week. Um, but the times I don't hit my mark of three times a week, and I'd like to even go four times a week. I'm like, you know, what's, what's going on? Am I just giving my, do I really need that rest? I'm telling myself I need, or should I be, shouldn't I just force myself to go, you know, that self-talk where you're just kind of like doubting yourself. And how do you kind of, how do you escape that kind of spiral for the fitness one? That's probably the biggest one for me. It's always like, I probably should go more. I probably should go more. Um, that internal self-talk, it can lead you. And I'm not scared of the fitness one. It doesn't really, not a big deal in my life. Um, but uh, I can see if it was around finances or around work or, or something maybe more serious, how it could, it could turn into this big negative cycle. How do you break that? Well, honest self-appraisal is a skill. And I'm certainly not someone who tries to tell my clients that no, no matter what you're doing, you're, you're doing the best you can, right? I, you, we've got to have honest uh, self-appraisal. Damn, so you have to be accountable. You, to, yes, you, you must. You must. I mean, yeah, everyone yeah. must, right? Yeah. But... I'm wondering for you, just based on that example, not to put you on the no, hot no, seat, no, but do it. It, it sounds like in that case, you were really living out some values as far as, you know, your values you have in your relationship with, with family, your children, presumably your wife. So maybe there's room there to spend a little more time in those domains. And the challenge of being a human being is you only have so much time, right? And so it, it maybe the family domain got a little more attention maybe the the fitness one fell to the back burner a little bit for for a number of weeks that's okay because if you're servicing one value you are inherently taking time and energy from other domains and that's freeing because it gives you permission to congratulate yourself for spending time on your values just as a starting point and it disabuses you from trying to be perfect on all of them because that's that's sometimes people have a total lack of clarity yeah, on values. And then some people have these great values, but then they want to live them all at 90 and 100%. And I say, no, you, you can't, you cannot. 
and hopefully that's freeing. It's it, people kind of go through a little mourning process sometimes. Well, I can't, you know, I can't be the perfect husband, perfect employee, perfect this, perfect that, perfect body, perfect fitness. Like, no, you can't. You can if you show me a person who's a seventy percent employee, a seventy percent family member, you know, mother, father, whatever role they have there, uh, a seventy percent, seventy percent in terms of their fitness, seventy um, percent across all domains whatever those domains are. I'm willing to bet that person's probably living a pretty meaningful life. You know what I mean? And, and the 70%, again, that's not some, um, um, that, that's your 70% is going to depend on who you are and what individual traits and challenges um, you have. And if you're living 70% across the board, I'm here to tell you that you're, you're, you're doing great. That's such a good thing to hear. Holy smokes. So I think the biggest thing I'm challenged with is sometimes people will come in here and they will say, Tom, Nick, you know what? You guys obviously have everything figured out and I want to do, I want to, you know, get some real estate. I want to start a business. I want to hit the gym. I want to go on vacation. And I think they're trying to do it all at a hundred percent. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You have to understand when we started this business, I wasn't going to the gym at all. I didn't have the time between family, which was one of my high values to your point. And this business, I didn't have time to go to the gym. Nick did because he's a maniac and he's going to find time to go to the gym at all the time. His, that, that value on his list is really high. He's always going to find time for that. But for me, I, I just couldn't make it all work. And I had to keep the family at a certain level. So to your like 70% level. And I felt if I introduced the gym, then family would start dropping to the 50% level. And family to me is higher than fitness. So I have to maintain that one. Where Whereas I think a lot of books on like hitting your goals or like maximizing your life. It's they kind of sell people. And I don't know if this is intentional, by the way, from the authors, but they sell people on like, you can do everything you want in life and you can't maintain that. So I tell everyone, Hey, look, if you're going to go start getting some real estate properties, that's going to take a bunch of time. And some other things are going to have to pull down a little bit. If you're going to start a business, don't think you can start a business and still maintain all these other things you want to do. You're going to be too hard on yourself for failing at the business. Some things have to drop away. So this, this kind of myth of a perfectly balanced life, and maybe I should qualify it now better, perfectly balanced at 100% is impossible. Yeah. So you're, the, the, I've never really thought of it that way that you're saying it. Like the 70% level is like, yeah, I feel now in my life where I'm at, if I can hit the gym a bit, and I can spend the time I want with the family and kind of feed Rockstar and do some Rockstar stuff, take care of some real estate portfolio stuff, manage some friend, some social time. And none of it's like at a 10 out of 10. But if I can hit all those things, man, I'm feeling pretty good. Yep. And I never really thought of it that way. And like it varies a, week to week. Some, some weeks you're going to be really servicing certain domains. Other weeks you're going to be other ones. And it's just constantly readjusting. You're never going to – we talk about values as, as if, you know, you're going to come – see a psychologist and then you know, I'm going to help you. And in six months, you're going to be quote unquote, living your values. And from that point forward, you are just living your values. It's a gauge, right? I, I think of it as a gauge between, are you in schema mode, you know, unhelpful, um, fear driven mode? What, what is a schema? That's just your, your core belief, your core belief. Sorry. Okay. So I, I use the term schema because that core, we have positive core beliefs too. Like, like, don't get me wrong. It's not like all you got core beliefs and they're all, they're all negative and they're all um, causing you trouble and distress in your life where we all have positive core beliefs and views on the world. Like if I've got the core belief of like, you know, most people are, are reasonable, kind people. That's a positive core belief. Um, a, a mistrustful, um, unhelpful schema is you can't trust anybody. Like 
keep your head up all the time, look out for you because you can't trust anybody. And, and you can see if you live your life according to that, that's going to shape your mm-hmm. behavior, your worldview, your, your uh, emotional state big time. Um, that's funny you say that because yeah I, I, I th- uh, sometimes people call me naive because I always think the best out of people and some of my friends are like no that person did that it was a completely negative thing that they did and I'm like I don't really know I think they probably just didn't know what they're doing and it was it's fine like they are at a different stage in their life they didn't get that and I also have that about money that with Nick and I always joke about because I always think there's enough money I'm like I don't know there's always gonna be enough money we're always just figure it out like I might have to work really hard and to get enough money, but I'm always going to figure out where some people I meet are always coming from the place of there's never enough money. And you can hear it in their, they're, oh my gosh, I'm going to run out of money. There's never enough money. I'm like, wow, that's such an interesting way to live because I don't live that way. I don't know why. I don't know when I got this belief, but I'm always like, I don't know. I think I'm going to figure it out. I think there's going to be enough money in my life. And that, that's probably a protective factor in your life. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. yeah. The, the funny part of it is that um, there is research on... Uh, folks who are going through depression and they t- actually tend to be more accurate about their their predictions right and so folks who are able to be kind of optimistic even if optimism comes at the it's cost not of a being, healthy state <laughs> well, no, even if it comes at the cost of being perfectly accurate about your predictions um, optimism is worth pursuing so long as you're not being so optimistic that you're uh, missing critical, yeah, got it, got it, got it. Okay, so what would repeat that point that if you're in a depressive state, you maybe are more accurate about your life situation? about perceptions, right? Oh, about so, perceptions so I, of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So again, I'm I'm reaching back into the the undergraduate psychology uh, courses at this point. Um, I can't Great. recall that's the, my, the that's my world, studies. and I don't remember anything about yeah. it. So good, <laughs> we're in the same boat. <laughs> um, but I think like a, of ranking. I think what they had done, so again, for anyone listening, don't quote me on this. I'm sure we could find the the exact studies, classic studies in psychology. I think what they had done is taken people and asked asked a group of people to rate them on a range of attributes. So we're going to rate Tom on his his looks, his intelligence, his this and that and that. And the people who were depressed were actually more accurate about the ratings than were the people who, the the folks who were not depressed were a little um, too positive. Yeah, got it. So it's a protective factor. That's interesting. And there's a whole line of uh, psychology called learned optimism, right? So um, the idea we we can have learned helplessness and learned pessimism, uh, totally demotivating, sets you up for uh, depressive paralysis, so to speak. But what if we could learn how to think and perceive optimistically? And that's essentially what we're talking about. I, I got to get you to sit down with me and Nick together so that you can tell Nick that, yeah, Tom's just much more opt. He's learned how to be much more optimistic than you. I'm joking. Nick's very optimistic, too. We're just a little bit different in the way we express it. How about how about this? How do you deal with people in a relationship situation? I think that was one of the things that you deal with, right? Relationships. Yep. How do you deal with people in relationships where their values are different? Because I've noticed something about just men and women. I'm, oh, I'll probably get blasted for even saying this, but I just find most of the, 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 the men that I know in a relationship or of two parties in a relationship will be different. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a man and a woman, I guess. It's just um, two people in a relationship. I, w- I find that one person is going to be like uh, more concerned about 
work, career, money, and, the, and that'll be their number one value. Then the second one might be family, or maybe family will even be third. Like maybe the second one will be, you know, something, something else, personal time, recreation, I don't know, whatever. But then the other person will be family is number one. And that's the number one value in their life. And then I find communication breaks down in that situation because somebody's talking about in the relationship is always talking about making money or a career and they're doing everything that they're doing for the family. I think this is a very common thing in relationships, especially between a husband and a wife. Like a husband will say, hey, I'm doing all this stuff for the family. But maybe, you know, the wife in that situation is saying she doesn't see it that way because her number one core value is time with the family and spending time, quality time with the family. And their values are kind of not synced up and it creates a relationship problem. I, f I find I see so situations like that all the time. How do you deal with that if your values don't line up? Is, so there, is, is that something that just is like we all have to live with and you have to be aware of? Because I'll tell you from a marketing point of view, like the marketer in me, this is, and I think I learned this from different marketing stuff that we studied, is that you always communicate to somebody if you're going to sell something or market something, you always write down what that person's values are and you communicate to their number one value, right? And I was like, oh, this is like a good thing to know just about relationships. Like if the person sitting across from me, like if my wife's value is family, I know I better be talking about family all the time. And I just took it from like the sales world or the marketing world. I was like, this is pretty good information. But from the marketing point of view, it was like, if you are going to penetrate with your message, you must always communicate not what's your number one value. So if you want to make a sale, don't talk about why real estate is so good, for example. Talk about what their number one value is, maybe that it's going to give them more time with their family. So you could say, hey, buying this piece of real estate is going to help you long term because it's going to be an additional uh, source of income that will give you more free time to spend ultimately with your family. Am I making sense? For sure. So I think you're you're painting kind of an optimistic situation where if you've got two people in a relationship and they their values are lined up and maybe they're they're not synced up in terms of each other understanding how one's day to day behaviors contribute to certain values. I think that's a good thing, and that's probably an easier problem to fix. I don't do couples work, but I deal with individual clients on a, a relationships uh, quite frequently. It's a big part of what I do um, to the extent that you know you can in one-on-one uh, -on -one work. Um, so if you've got that situation, that then it becomes a, a question of communication and, and planning. I think that's that's a good spot to be in. Hey, we've got reasonable alignment on our values. Um, how do we communicate to each other how, what we're doing and where we wanna spend our time, um, services, those given values. You get into trouble when you have what we would call schema chemistry in a relationship. So you can see a situation where some, if someone is very narcissistic, they're, they might have great chemistry with someone who's a, a huge self-sacrificer, right? And so that that person who's a huge self-sacrificer is just unfortunately going to get overrun in that relationship. And that's you know, probably uh, not, a, yeah. not a I'm great talking relationship about a, a to be in. a simpler level than that, G. So you see some serious stuff. It runs the gamut. Yep. Yeah, wow. So how so in that situation, now that you've brought that situation that kind of situation up, how does somebody get out of that kind of relationship? If is it's it a, recognizing the problem? If it's a long-term relationship, it it takes time. It takes a lot of time and uh, the person has to decide 
what it is that they they want to do and what are the pros and cons of taking whatever direction that they they want to take but you, you see it's never you know it's rarely I shouldn't say never clearly there are cases where you definitely say this relationship is not good for you and and let's have a conversation about that how we, we we protect you and keep you safe but it's rarely that cut and dry and so what often i'm engaged on in with clients when it comes to relationships is exploring where you have unmet needs what are the the communication gaps and we try to to um, resolve them through those strategies if you, know, you get to a point where you say i'm doing what i can do on my end and i i don't have uh, a partner who's willing to play ball well then it then that's a the conversation shifts in terms of you know if if you are saying to me as a client you know you no longer want to be in the, that relationship let's let's check the assumptions that are that are part of that to ensure that you know there's no blind spots that are leading you down um, that path of action um and then from there, just it's a process. If they decide that they do want to work towards, if the goal is to change relationships, to leave a relationship, um, then that that's generally a, a can be a long term process, especially if it's a, a long term relationship. Holy smokes, that's not, do you 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 need to take care of yourself and your profession. You guys deal with a lot of shit. <laughs> Holy smokes, it, man! You, you you need to practice with self care, and I think the profession even in the, the time that I've been in the profession is, is evolving to put more emphasis on self-care because if it sounds so cliche to say the whole oxygen mask example, you know, in the, you're in the plane, the oxygen mask mm-hmm. comes down, even if you, with young children, you got to put your mask on first so you can help your kids. Um, same thing in, in our profession is, you know, if I'm not well, I'm sure as heck not going to be a, a, of optimal uh, use to my clients. So you got, you got to keep yourself well. And, and to me, that's, that r- relates to just mindful self-reflection. Um, a lot can be said objectively about scheduling. What does my schedule look like? You know, I don't, I don't set out there to see as many clients as I can in a day. That's not rewarding, A, and it's not sustainable. So um, things like that, just a self-reflective practice is really important. Yeah, because you got to take a break from some of the stuff you're dealing with. Is you're having some heavy conversations. Someone really helped me out a lot, and it was a psychologist that I think the insurance company put me in touch with. Uh, I got rear-ended really badly. Mm-hmm. My car smashed into the 18-wheeler and then threw me to two other cars, and I blacked out. I had the weirdest experience. I, I heard myself screaming out of body. Like I heard my, I don't know, even know. It was like all I can tell you is that my point of reference was like up to my right, and it was like I heard myself screaming and the tone of my screaming was like something I never heard come from my body before. It was like a terror scream. And I, I had blacked out because someone knocked on the window of my car to wake me up. And I got out. I was like, I was completely fine. I had a concussion. Um, but I'll never forget that. Like I had blacked out. But when I reflect back on it um, almost immediately, I, I remember hearing myself scream. But the perspective of myself wasn't in my body. I know that sounds crazy. <laughs> well, I, but that that was like I it was like I was looking down at myself screaming and it was just crazy. And then it was freaking me out for a little bit and uh, a psychologist said, "Hey, look, you seem like the type of person that likes to be in control a lot." And they said, "You didn't have control. You lost control in that moment. Just accept that you had lost control." Go by that intersection, drive through it again, and just know that, yeah, you didn't, you had no control in that situation. And I'm like, oh my God, she said that to me. It just 
made my whole life so much better. <laughs> it was like, really, that was it. I think I was booked for like 10, the insurance company I think had paid for like 10 sessions. I think after that session, I was like, ah, that's, that's all I needed to hear. That was perfect. But you, <laughs> but you could, there's some good, uh, I think we should study what are the, the protective factors, right? Because it's rarely, I'd be lying if, uh, you know, I, I said that it's, it's like, hey, you, you know, you've, you've gone through a potentially traumatic situation or you've got this phobia, you know, t- two, three sessions, no problem, right? It's it's often a lot more uh, work than that. And uh, uh, but I'm glad for you, in your, your sake, there's clearly so protective it factors w- there that uh, you're tapping into. Yeah, you think that's what it was? There's got to be, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, however you're viewing that Because I was bothered by it. I was like kind of freaked out. I'm like, why am I freaking out? And the, and the thought of the intersection freaked me out. And and then it was like kind of just, it was this weird anxiety that I couldn't like shake. And it's not like me to hold on to something like that. And I think that's ultimately, they gave me the package of like physiotherapy and yep. seeing uh, the psychologist. And I wasn't even going to go. But I think it was my wife who said, hey, if you can't shake this thing, why don't you go to one of those appointments? And uh, I just found that that perspective, as soon as she said that, that, oh, you're, you just didn't have control in that moment. And the, you're probably kind of holding on to some stress or anxiety because you had lost control. It was a situation you didn't control and you like to control things right. from you talking to me. So that that's really interesting. Just as we're talking about it, some of the protective factors there are, are related to, or the, if we look at the active ingredients, you know, why, why did Tom uh, get through this? Well, there's been a, a change in belief and interpretation. If you had said, I'm at risk and oh my God, I've been living my life with huge blind spots. I've got to be so much more careful or this is going to happen again. I'm a risky person. Okay, that, that's a set of beliefs that is going to um, set you up for long-term impact of that mental health impact of that that accident. And then you've mentioned you went back to the site of the accident. What if you didn't? What if you said that that intersection is dangerous? I'm not going to go. You don't go for a month. You don't go for six months. You don't go for a year. That's going to potentially impact um, some interpretations that you have about yourself. And then that could, you know, it sounds cliche to say uh, result in a, a downward spiral, but you can see how the avoidance, if you were to have avoided going back to the intersection, could reinforce fear in that situation. Yeah, got it. Holy smokes, there's so much to figure out. You know what? There's something else. You're, you're making me think of something else that Nick and I always do is that whenever in our lives, and then we're going to start, I, I want to ask you about some, some of your uh, real estate stuff in a second, but whenever in our lives we're faced with something that we don't want to do, we know that's the right thing to do. So how do you know it's the right thing? Because every time we've ever done it, it has worked the problem out. So for example, whenever we've had a tenant that like, I don't know, called us like, uh, you know, I remember one, one tenant calling us a coward over email. I thought that was really interesting that like over email, they were calling us a coward because we were kind of negotiating the rent and they were really nice to us. And I don't know, they just kind of went off the rails. And we thought, you know what, instead of ignoring the situation, we were in the right, they really didn't have any, uh, any kind of recourse there. Why don't we pick up the phone, call them, try to talk this out so they understand our perspective. And neither of us felt like doing that. The person had kind of like upset. There's a bit of a history here, but we felt like that was the right thing to do. But neither of us wanted to do it. So we always, and whenever we look at each other and we both realize it's something that like should be done, but neither of us want to do it. We're like, Ugh, which one of us is doing it? Because it's got to be done. And whenever you pick up the phone call in that particular example, it's a small little example. We had the conversation, totally worked out the relationship. They understood our perspective. We understood their perspective. Everything was golden from then on. So that's just a, a little example. Just always in my life, I've realized, you know, anytime there's something I don't want to do, if I end up facing that fear, it just dissipates and my life's better. I'm lighter. I don't know. 
I'm trying to sound smart to you, Jeff, and I don't know no, where. What I'm, so that's <laughs> what you're talking about. It's it's a form of exposure, or at the very least, non-avoidance. So a huge part of our work in CBT is rooting out avoidance, right, and and helping constructively expose people to their fear. So it sounds like you've got a mechanism through which you say, okay, what what is going to be a, a healthy, helpful action here, even if it's scary. How do I you know, go and do that thing. Uh, so it's anti-avoidant, which sounds like a really healthy approach, especially if you've got a core set of values, which it sounds like you do, um, that are guiding what you perceive to be uh, healthy. Um, if you avoided those things, you can see how, okay, well, this one tenant situation, ah, you know, maybe I'd like to talk to him, but God, I don't want to, too scared, I don't want to do it. It's going to be too scary. Or, you know, screw that guy, you know, piece of garbage, but no, no, I'm not going to give him the time of day. You can see how either of those interpretations or thoughts or beliefs could have led to a much worse outcome that could have carried on for months. Totally. Yeah. Longer. So, so it's funny you say it like that. Cause I always tell Nick, it's like we have these, uh, these operating systems that we live by that are almost like selfish cheats. Like we know that they're going to benefit us. It's almost like when I don't hold, if someone kind of crosses me in a way, I never really, I always forgive them. And I always feel, cause people, and people will say things to me like, oh, you're always like, you're so nice. You're forgiving that person. And I always tell them straight up. I'm like, I think it's a little bit of a selfish mechanism because I find when I forgive people and I truly am forgiving them. I'm not playing an act on forgiveness. When I forgive them, I feel better. Like I'm lighter. Like it's like, I just can walk around life a little bit better and I don't want to carry that with me. So then I think, oh my gosh, this is how your my mind works. I'm like, oh my gosh, did I really forgive them right there? Or am I just forgiving them because I know it's going to benefit me? So I, I find that your mind, you can play circles in this game forever, but I do find that that's like a little cheat in life. And Nick and I have a bunch of those where it's like, you know what? We're just going to forgive the person and genuinely mean it. You not pretend to forgive them. They feel better. We feel better. We can all move on. We have a better energy about us and life's better. So and forgiveness is a value that you hold. And, and what you're saying there is it a que- reminds me of a question that we often ask clients is, you know, is it helpful for you to hold on to whatever thought it is that, that's causing you problem? And I think it, you, it sounds like you're asking yourself that same question. Like, it, okay, even if this person did, you know, do me wrong in this case, is it and sometimes helpful? they did. Right, sometimes sure. they genuinely did yeah. do me wrong. <laughs> but is it helpful to you to hold on to that thought? It, it sounds like you're, you know, you have a this skill set to to realize, like, hey, I'm, maybe there's a lesson to be learned here. And I mean, if there's a lesson, I'm not going to ignore it. But I'm going to place my value, my behavior based on the value of forgiveness. I'm going to forgive this person, and uh, I'm going to recognize it's probably not helping me any to hold on to this thought or this grudge. Yeah, you're making me think of, uh, of, of a situation that we both grew up in, Nick and myself, on where we kind of learned to confront things. We both grew up on construction sites with our father. And if you, if somebody, I'll just never forget, like people would do the craziest things on construction sites, like just like, you know, there's four outlets for power. This is before rechargeable everything. And you had to actually plug in your screw gun and all this stuff. Someone would like, you know, just unplug your power and plug in their power. And if you're in a condominium, you don't know who did it. You have to kind of go through the condominium units to figure out who's working where. where. And the only way to communicate back then, I, I, I understand construction sites are a lot more civil right now, but you had to scream at people. Like that was, the, that was the communication method. If you didn't scream, it was a sign of weakness and that you wouldn't get what you wanted. 
And I think it was our father who kind of taught us like, oh no, if this guy unplugged your power, you just unplug his, you plug yours back in and then you find him and you ask him why he unplugged your power and you just have it out right there and there and then it's done. And I found whenever you did that, I was terrified because I'd be a teenager, like 14, 15 on, on these job sites. I probably legally wasn't even supposed to be there. Who knows? And, uh, I'd get into these screaming matches that kind of were a little terrifying with <laughs> some fully grown adults, but I found then they respected me and the situation kind of just dissipated. And I think from the, the, the construction site, I just learned that, oh, when there's a problem, you just go and face the problem head on, even if it's very scary and good things happen from facing the problem. I know that sounds weird, Jeff. Well, it's, aware it's, it doesn't sound weird at all. It's, I think, you know, my dealings with you have been very pleasant and non-aggressive, but um, makes me think of different communication styles and the fact that it's it's interesting that I think you could have gone down a path of an aggressive communication style, right? We always encourage people to practice assertiveness and people often confuse assertive with aggressive. So aggressive is, you know, yelling at people. It's my way or the highway. If you, if I don't like what you're doing, I'm going to screw you over. Um, so you've got aggressive, you've got passive aggressive, and you've got assertive, and you've also got you know, straight up passive. So we're always in- encouraging people, especially if they don't have a lot of experience with practicing assertiveness and expressing their and, needs. And what is assertiveness? Just saying what you intend to say, Sen- saying what you mean, that's being assertive? Assertive is expressing your needs. So the example that I like to give is if you look at the world as a stage, if you are aggressive, the view is, it's my stage, and I control this stage, and Got you it. get the hell off of it. Passive is, oh, no, like, it's if you want to have the stage, you, you have the stage, right? Passive-aggressive is, okay, I'll let you have the stage now, but I'm going to loosen the screws on the platform so that you fall through when you're on top of it. <laughs> and assertive is, hey, I, I'd like to use the stage. If you'd like to use it too, let's share it. You know, the, the world is both of our stage. So um, it, it's being able to express your needs, ask for, for your needs to be met and being okay if, if they're not met. Like assertive doesn't mean you control the outcome. It doesn't mean you get what you want, but it means, you know, a, a mutual sharing of, of needs and ideas. I feel like I have so much I want to talk to you about, you know, social situations. Um, I feel like this winter is going to be really interesting for a lot of us in Canada because I feel like it's going to be winter, first of all. I always feel a little, I was explaining to you during winter, I always feel a little bit, uh, I don't know the right word, just a little, I don't want to say down, but just a little, like, I don't know, just a little more gloomy or something. Um, Almost just like, hey, I want to see the sun. And where, where is the sun? <laughs> that kind of thing. But now if the economy turns and winter's coming and COVID's not fully away, I'm like, Ugh. this winter for Canadians to me is going to be a little dark. And uh, I swear I'm an optimistic person, but I just feel like there's a bunch of variables all coming together simultaneously that are going to produce some challenging times. So like, you know, if you're listening to this and you need something, make sure you find who you need to talk to, especially right now. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, I want to, I want to know something about you. Why did you decide to get, cause you said, is it you and your wife together decided to buy is it your first rental property? Yep. The, you're going to turn it into a duplex yep. that you're closing. That's how you found us by the way. Right. Exactly. You found the podcast. 
Um, because you, this is interesting because you're the PhD in psych, clinical psychology, but you were having a fearful moment, I'm sure, buying this piece of real estate. At some point, there was some fear there. I don't know where with the financing or something, but you've decided to do this. Why into, because you have an MBA as well. Yeah. Why did you decide to get a piece of real estate? What was the thought process? I'm curious. Yeah, so I think it comes back to, we talk about different domains and values. And what if we look at, the values that we want to live out in life, certainly, you know, a finance, there's a financial component to that. And that's not, uh, from a greed perspective. And, and by the way, you know, as talking as a clinical psychologist, kind of strange to talk about finance sometimes, but this isn't a reflection of my practice and the view of my work. This isn't about like, Oh, you got to make, make money and get all the money you can while you can. Um, you know, you structure your, your work and your career in line with your values. And then hopefully you do have some, some resources to, to invest, um, thereafter. And so I'm in the fortunate position where, um, that, that was the case. And, and we said, okay, how can we, um, invest our funds in a way that's aligned with our values? Coming back to real estate, um, there's a certain comfort, I think, in being able to look at the the asset and say what is the reasonably expected return on this this asset and so you just come back to the numbers and yeah it, it's scary and it's uh um there's lots of hard work that's that goes into it and a lot of um analysis and over analysis um but at the end of the day there is a certain comfort in, in me and say like no like we're doing this because we feel like it's a a reasonably values aligned um, way to to invest the resources that we have. It's an opportunity to be good landlords and and help people out in that sense. And we can see what the expected return is. It's not it's not guesswork. Um, so that that's kind of the in a nutshell what. I can't wait there. till you have your first tenant issues and you're a clinical <laughs> psychologist that's going to try to manage the situation. I remember when we first started getting into rental properties and Nick and I were dropping off gift baskets at Christmas and doing all these kinds of things. And then we had the first series of tenants and we have so many great, great tenants, but we had a couple that really kind of, you know, treated us poorly and kind of took off on the properties um, and we thought, oh my gosh, like we spent all that time developing that relationship and then they just didn't care about it at the end and ruined it all. And it kind of scars you a little bit, you know, and we stopped doing the gift baskets at Christmas for everyone right across the board. And, uh, it'll be interesting to see how you manage your tenants and your tenant situations. Um, we actually had, a we had a student rental property, uh, Nick, actually this one I owned, I didn't own it with Nick and the day after we sold it literally the day the next day it closed there was a domestic situation at the mm. property and the person who bought it um, from us was i believe they were a clinical psychologist as well and they offered to sit down with the parties and figure things out i'm like wow they're handling that so differently than i would have handled it you know because we, we would have been assertive but we would have probably just followed whatever the because the police were called and stuff but this person got right in the middle of the situation was willing to like kind of mediate things and stuff and i thought wow that's just incredible you know um so who knows who knows what's in your future it's, there's gonna be lots of <laughs> stories i'm sure yeah yeah but i think listen I, I i love to read a whole bunch of different biographies and autobiographies and after reading a bunch of them over time about you know people starting businesses throughout history I came to the conclusion that there was like basically three things that I kept hearing that people who amass any sort of wealth in their lives and, 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 and to your point, Nick and I like real estate because of our whole message of living life on your terms. 
Yeah. Like we want to be able to help other people and that's living life on our terms. But to do that, we have to help ourselves financially to have the footing to be able to then reach out and help other people. Right. Um, so throughout all these books, it always came down to wealthy people seem to own art, precious metals and land. It was like any book I read, like if you boiled it down, it was like always going to be, you know, art, precious metals and land. And I'm like, ah, I don't really understand the art industry too well. Like, I don't understand what is a fine piece of art. I went and saw Salman Mona Lisa in Paris. I'm like, oh, it's kind of a pretty good painting. I thought it was going to be bigger. You know, it's kind of small. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, I don't know if art's going to be my thing, but I understand precious metals or I, I began to understand them kind of in detail. So to, to us, precious metals today would be silver and gold. And I would lump Bitcoin into that as well because it's a hard money. So uh, silver, gold, Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, and then I realized, oh, all the big central bankers in the world, they all have gold on their balance sheets and they don't make a big deal of it. And these are some of the richest people in the world. I should probably get some of this gold stuff. And again, Nick and I are kind of big into Bitcoin right now. So I would say gold, Bitcoin, and then land. And if it's income producing land, even better. So if it's a rental property that pays for the debt on the property and spits off some cash flow, even better. And I feel like in today's economy and today's world, debt is going to be difficult to manage. So if you have things that pay for the debt, um, they are going to be golden. I tell, I'm telling everyone right now, like a cash flowing property is going to be like a unicorn. Um, I know a lot of people in the finance industry and they are begging to find anything that will produce income right now. And they tell me straight up, Tom, if we could buy properties, like you guys can buy properties, like, like Jeff, the duplex that you're going to be putting together in Ottawa there, they would buy them, but they're just not in a situation to buy them. Um, but they can't find assets that produce cash flow. So I feel like the individual Canadian right now, if you're smart about it and sophisticated with it, you are in a unique situation to pick up some great assets where other people can't. The institutional buyers can't, and a whole bunch of Canadians are scared or are unable to, unfortunately. But you're in, if you're in the position to do it, you're getting you know one of the three pillars, art, precious metals, precious, precious metals and land that people throughout generations have owned to produce financial freedom. So it's my long way of saying I think it's a good choice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think that the message too uh, to people is it's not rocket science. Like it, it, there's certainly a learning curve. And, and I will say, you know, for my wife and I being educated professionals, wow, like there's a, there's a learning curve and there's time that goes into it. But it's more of an emotional exercise of, you know, understanding what your goals are, what your values are, you know, that working that decision-making muscle, um, you know, sticking to your plan that, that takes work. But as far as the numbers, this is not rocket science. Have you ever tried to read a prospectus for, yeah. you know, like that there, there's That's something closer to rocket I, I've science. I've tried right? to read the mutual fund prospectuses that were put out when I first started investing in mutual funds in the late 1990s. And I know that makes me seem like a really old person, but I remember trying to read these things, just think ripping it, throwing it in the air. Like this yeah. is garbage to me. I can't make sense of this. So yeah, it's uh, a property is, uh, it's pretty basic. What are the income? What are the expenses on it? But I find that some people, the biggest way we get people to overcome their fears on this and is some people get so scared and I'm like, well, what are you scared about? Let's write it out on paper. And I find that if, if, if they write out, like, I'm scared of vacancies. So I'm like, okay, write it out. If I'm scared of damage, okay, write it out. If I'm scared of basement flooding, and then next to each one of those things, I'm like, well, how can we mitigate that risk? Because, you know, you can buy insurance in Canada now for vacancies. 
So if you're scared about having vacancies and with shelter in place happening with COVID, there's no real vacancies going on anywhere. And with our population growth, um, damage from tenants, you can buy insurance on that. So let's write everything out that you're scared of and next to it, how can we overcome that fear? And I, I find as soon as people do that exercise, they look at it and they're like, oh, there's not really much left on my list here. So that's one of the little things we use. Yeah, it's making um, the fears and assumptions objective. Yeah, is that, is that what we're doing? See, it sounds yep. much smarter when you say it. That's <laughs> what we're doing. We're making the fears and assumptions objective. And I, I think also, is that why um, you would say that when people feel overwhelmed, I find when, you know, I found my, I give myself giving my, my son this advice that I'm like, when you go to university, there's going to be a lot of new stuff on your plate. Whenever you feel overwhelmed, get a piece of paper out and just write out all the things that you have to do that day or that week. And as soon as you do that, you're going to feel like a weight is taken off yep. you. So that's what's happening there? I think that's part of it. I mean, I do that every day, right? I've got my digital calendar and then I've got, I take a piece of paper and I literally write out the things that I want to do that day. And right off the bat, like some days I, oh man, like. That, that's a, there's a lot going on there you better and that to me is is not a sign of okay so buck up and like let's rush through this all that's saying okay maybe there's too much on the list here and, and let's take take some of that off um so that's sort of something i do every day right i the date it's it sounds like a, a strange ritual in a way but you know i, I gotta put the date at the top and then i, I write down just the, the things that i want to get done that day and then i'm flexible uh, and realistic with myself. And I think a lot of people, if they don't have a, a realistic um, stance on what they can achieve in a day, and, and for the folks I see, it's usually they're trying to do too much, right? They, they get into paralysis and then they beat themselves up. I'm going to do 100 things today. And then, oh, geez, I couldn't get all 100 done. I only got 88 done. There's something wrong with me. What's wrong with me? I'm so what lazy. do you tell that person? Just uh, make their list smaller and be accountable to that smaller list? Well, we generally go a, a level deeper in the sense of, okay, well, what is what are the thoughts and the assumptions that um, you have about what you need to get done? I mean, what what's driving you to put 100 things on, on your to-do list? Well, I, I feel like I should. There's a keyword, right? I should be able to get this much done. Right. And that, okay, well, let's, let's work with that thought. So we, we look at the, the thoughts that are driving the action first in, in a lot of situations. Got it. That's back to your thoughts, feelings, behaviors yep. model. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Before I let you go here, how does someone go from getting an MBA to becoming a clinical psychologist? How did that path work itself out? Yeah. So I did my, my undergraduate degree, obviously in psychology. And then at that point, I wasn't certain if I wanted to spend, cause it's a six year PhD programs. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to take the six years right after the, the four-year undergrad. And I sort of had uh, uh, some folks who were talking about doing their MBA and co-op MBAs. And so I started looking into that and it seemed like a reasonable option. And I set out to want to work in healthcare or human resources. So I ended up working in both. Uh, I'd worked at, at Lake Ridge Health, initially did uh, co-op at uh, Toronto East General Hospital. Now it's uh, Michael Guerin Hospital, which was an awesome um uh, learning experience. Uh, so did the co-op MBA, started working at Lake Ridge Health in strategic planning, eventually uh, moved to Southeast Toronto, a family health team, and worked in human resources there. And these were, you know, for, for where I was at, I mean, these are kind of great 
jobs, you know, yeah, decent sounds pay, like it, yeah. you know, benefits and all that. Local? You're born in Toronto? Uh, born in uh, Mississauga, okay. but when I was four, what part of Mississauga? To, I'll tell you if we're enemies or not enemies. I could well, you know, even because we moved. I was okay. I wasn't even four. Nick are close. Uh, Nick and I were born close to uh, not born. I was born in Toronto actually. We grew up Burnham Thorpe and Dixie area. So I didn't know if that was. Uh, so we're so gonna have to hate you. I'm or so like ill informed. Yeah. Okay, okay, right. okay. okay, we're friends. We're friends. Uh, but yeah, let's let's leave it at that. Um, and then moved to uh, Bowmanville. So grew up in Bowmanville. Cool. So that's you know that's home. Um, um, somehow while living in Bowmanville, became a huge Ottawa Senators fan. Oh, um, so we- <laughs> you're so lucky you didn't start that way. We have never had this podcast. Senators fan. I, d- on I didn't. Here? I didn't want to tell you until the you end. Know, don't tell me your second favorite team is the Habs. Oh no! no oh okay. No, it's not. All right. Okay. I, okay. I I have a hard time. No, as a Senators fan, sorry, as a Senators fan, of course it's not the Habs. I get it. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, yeah, the folks who like, you know, yeah. the actually my my mother-in-law likes the Sens and the Leafs, um, so she says. But um, no, I have a hard time understanding folks who like the the Habs and the Leafs or the Habs and yeah, the Sens. Yeah, we've had a couple Habs fans on here. One of our members actually came in here with his Habs jersey on. He's from Ottawa. He moved to Ottawa oh, and he had his Habs jersey on. I wasn't here that day and they let him in my office here and took a picture and he sent it to me. He's like, look where I am with this big Habs jersey. I'm like, you get out of my office right now. <laughs> I should have brought my son's yeah. jersey. Um, but yeah, all my, my buddies who are in up and still are Leafs fans. Um, but anyway, it was kind of fate that ended up uh, in Ottawa. So lived in Bowmanville, went to McMaster uh, Laurier in Waterloo, um, lived in Toronto for a few years and then... Now Ottawa, and we, we love Ottawa. Yeah, met your wife and are you? Wait, did you say yeah, you're married? married? You're married. Yeah, yeah I, I yeah. don't have my ring on yeah, actually okay. because uh, minor, well, hey, whatever minor re- hockey no, well, hey, whatever reason you want to, whatever reason you want to say that you don't have your ring on, that's fine. That's between you and your uh, wife. That's none of my you, business. You, we'll call that's her. None of my, I know she's here. She's <laughs> going to pick you up here. But um, okay, and then you get into uh, where did you? Sorry, where did you finish the PhD? When University of Ottawa. Oh, it was in Ottawa. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And now you've been out in Ottawa and you're out there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, hey, listen, I, Jeff, I don't know why you decided to reach out, um, but I'm really thankful. And I think that if anyone's listening to this, you know, uh, and you need to reach out to someone to talk about anything, man, find who you need. Absolutely. You know, I feel yeah. very fortunate that I was able to do this business with my brother because there's been times where I've been down about stuff like... You know, thinking, oh, wow, are we going to pull this off or not? And then Nick will be in a better mental state and he'll pick us up and say, no, no, we got this. Let's keep going. And then the roles will be reversed. He'll be having a few rough days and then I'll be in a mental state that will say, you know, no, we got this, especially when we were starting out and it was just the two of us. So I feel very fortunate to be able to do this business with my brother. Um, but if you're out there and you don't have someone right next to you and you're trying something, it can be so tough. So I think just knowing that there's people like you out there, Jeff, to me is helpful. And I find that I feel grateful that there's Canadians like you out there doing what you're doing, because I feel like you're doing some really cool, meaningful work. And it makes me kind of laugh at what I do, you know, help people kind of look at real estate and consider real estate. Whereas, you know, when you're tackling things like mental health and helping people with their relationships and all the things that you're helping them with, it's it's really, really important, you know, so. Well, thank you. And and likewise, because I, I think for, for anyone who doesn't know, I, you know I, I started listening to this podcast and I've just learned through uh, experience that 
just keep it genuine. Like just do things that you genuinely find interesting and you know, do things that resonate with you. And so this was a podcast that naturally resonated with me. And I think a large part of that is that it's some, you guys talk about taking care. It's to me, this is a wellness podcast. Yeah, you said that. Yeah, it yeah, it yeah. so happens that one of the tools for achieving that wellness is financial wellness. It so happens that real estate is one of the tools you might want to look at. Um, and I think you guys seem to genuine, genuinely convey that. And there's like, there's an ethics and there's a value system behind the way you guys do it. I've seen a lot. And, and again, for we talk about, you know, get, get started in real estate. The, like there are some folks out there who I'd say, you know, stay away from like, keep your, make sure that you've got your, your values, your, your ethics, your principles, uh, foremost when you're engaging in, in this type of endeavor. Uh, but I think for you guys, there seems to be that, that care of like, we're trying to help people here and there's a, there's a code of ethics behind it. So, um, likewise too, I appreciate the feedback and, um, yeah, that's, uh, just, just genuine, uh, feedback from me to you. Yeah, cool. That's too, you're, you're too kind. I mean, I love this country. Nick and I are a product of Canada. Our parents met in Canada. We wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Canada. So to me, part of it is a bit of a mission to try to help Canadians financially get on a firm footing. And then we throw in all this other stuff that we like talking about. But I just do feel obligated to this country. I feel like I'm born. I exist because of Canada. And so I just want to try to do anything I can. And that might sound ridiculous. Like, oh, these guys talking about some real estate stuff and but uh, thank you for saying that. It totally means a lot. And look, going forward, I want to have you back. There's, we didn't touch on half the stuff I wanted to talk to you about. So uh, if you're up for it, another time when you're passing through here, we're going to have you back on this. Absolutely. Um, what about people want to reach you? How can they find you? Is there a way, a website, I don't know, an email, a phone number, whatever? Yeah. So if you're, you're a professional, you know, wanting to, to connect, um, go to LinkedIn, just Dr. Jeff Braun on LinkedIn should pop up. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I don't uh, use it a ton handles at Dr. Jeff Perron. Um, and then if uh, you are looking for services, I'm at the Ottawa Institute for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Uh, website there is ottawacbt.ca. And then you can find uh, my page on there as well with, with my uh, uh, contact info. Okay. And if you're listening to this on the road, we will link to ottawacbt.ca on the show notes for this episode at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash podcast. And if you're going to find Jeff on LinkedIn, um, Jeff is J-E-F-F and Peron. No, how, how did you say your last name? Yep, Peron, P-E-R-R-O-N. P-E-R-R-O-N. So on LinkedIn at Jeff, J-E-E. Why, why am I struggling with it? J-E-F-F-P-E-R-R-O-N. Jeff, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This. Hey, everyone. It's Tom Crowds again. Thanks for li- listening to that episode. I definitely am stumbling all over my words, but we're going to keep going here. Jeff, a uh, great guy. So very thankful that he came on the episode. You can reach him um, via LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to look him up. Jeff Perron, as we mentioned, um, or look up the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy and you can find him there. Also, if you're listening to this and you want to get some information about real estate investing, you can download free copies of any of our books at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash books. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms. Your terms.